I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow. Eric grew up in Montana. He's been talking about how crowded it's been out there every time he visits, more so since the start of COVID. I wanted to find out more about these crowds and I decided to reach out to an old school Montana angler to find out how life and fishing has changed in the past several decades. Craig Matthews moved out west in the late 70s. Whether you know it or not, he's been a major influence in the flies you fish and the gear you wear on the water. We're going to talk hooks and hookers, public water, a 586-pound fly tying order, and conservation. If you want to help support this podcast, please go to my website, robsnowwhite.com, click on the store, and make some purchases from Etsy. You can fish all the flies I talk about from the Snow White Damsel and the Bacon Fly to intruders, beadhead nymphs, and more. Visit robsnowwhite.com for more information. Now, let's go to a very cold morning in Montana. So let's get started. Craig Matthews, where are you right now? If you were going to throw a dart at a map of the U.S., where would it land? Basically, where Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho come together in southwest Montana. We're in the Madison Valley, 45 miles downstream of the West Gate to Yellowstone Park, and we're about 30 miles south of the town of Ennis, Ennis, Montana. And the weather today is quite cold? Yes, it was 17 below zero a few minutes ago. It's supposed to climb to a high of 20 today. Bright sunshine, though. We got about nine inches of fresh snow in the last couple of days. So things are really beautiful out there. I wish you could see. They're very hard to see, but we've got about 700 head of elk across the road. We've had a moose in the yard. We've had mule deer in the yard this morning. And I apologize if my dog's open up and start barking. I've got two German short hairs. And whenever the moose comes by, they tend to get fired up. <laughs> wow. That is fantastic. I have squirrels and a couple of birds. <laughs> we probably have, oh, a dozen Clark's nutcrackers right here at our feeders right now. We've got common red poles and we've got over 300 uh, purple finches that come in to feed. My wife's got feeders all over, but the first grizzly bears have come out hibernation last week, and there was one sighted 20 miles to the north of us, so our bird feeders are short-lived. They'll be coming in pretty quick. Wow, so they just go up to the bird feeders and just gobble it all up? Well, they we had nine bird feeders ripped down by one small boar grizzly a couple of years ago. He'd rip one 
down. He'd turn around, look right at you. I was yelling and screaming at him. He didn't care. He just ripped them down and throw them to the ground. <laughs> Not things you used to have to deal with in Michigan? No. Also, we forgot to get to your celebrity doppelganger. While, while we're discussing you, people may not know what you look like. Is there someone that you've been told you look like? You can make it up. You know, <laughs> I thought about this long and hard. There isn't. There's a co town councilman from Jackson, Wyoming. People tell me I look like, but uh, that's about it. There's enough images of me that if you Google, you'll see the old white haired guy. Usually you're wearing a Patagonia jacket. A lot of times I'm wearing a Patagonia jacket. Yeah, my best friend is Yvonne Chouinard, the owner of Patagonia. That's, that's a whole podcast in itself. We'll talk about him in a bit, too. So you were originally from Michigan. What brought you to Montana around the time I was born, not to age you? Well, we came here in 1979. And what brought us here, uh, my wife and I, both worked for a police department. I was from Grand Rapids, Michigan, went to Michigan State University, got an undergraduate. I was a cop back there and I was working on a dual master's program and used to come to Yellowstone. We take our overtime as comp time and come to Yellowstone to fish. And we'd take as much time as a month and come out to uh, Yellowstone area to, to fish. And one day my wife just said uh, in 1979, in February of 1979, she said, we're going to move to Montana. And I said, what? We had never even discussed it. And I think about a week later, we were flying out for a job interview. They hired her as a police dispatcher. And basically they hired me as the police chief of West Yellowstone, Montana, a position that I held through 1982. Was that a busy job out there back then in such a small town? Well, you know, people people don't realize, but Yellowstone permanent population back then of West Yellowstone was 700. But at times we'd have upwards of seven to eight thousand people a day. You know, there was 55 motels in West Yellowstone and everybody thought and Jackie and I both thought it'd be like Andy and Mayberry. You know, I'd be I'd be the cop and we'd have a great time and fly fish and spend a few years. And then we were going to go back to Michigan where I was going to take, a, a, you know, my old position back at the cop shop in Michigan. Well, West Yellowstone wasn't like India Mayberry. West Yellowstone uh, was controlled at that time, had a mob influence. The Bonanno family was here from the West Coast. Montana just legalized gambling. So we had full-on gambling. We had prostitution. We had uh, every gang, biker gang from the Hells Angels to the Gypsy Jokers and more hanging around town on their way to Sturgis to the big biker rally. And it was anything but quiet. Um, this town was crazy busy. And it was, it was really a lot of fun in that when I walked through the door and found out how busy it was and the type of situations that we'd be dealing with, I was, I was pretty amazed. But it was a challenge and we made it work. We worked with the bikers. Matter of fact, I'm writing my my years as police chief up right now. Um, I'm writing a book right now with the encouragement of Tom Brokaw, um, a good friend that used to be with NBC Nightly News. Tom McGuane's help, Berlin Klinkenberg, Nick Lyons. They've all been kind of encouraging me um, to write this book and tell the, the stories of when I was the police chief. Book number 10? It will be book number 10. Yeah, everything I've done up until now has been fly fishing oriented. This sounds like it, this book could be made into a TV show with well, all the characters you've come across those years as 
in the police. Brokaw always said this is going to be a mini series on NBC. And when I sent him my ideas in, in a short outline one day, he called up and he said, we can't put this on network TV. I said, I told you that. Wow. <laughs> It'll be X rated for sure. <laughs> so my other question was what draws people out there that's not fishing and it's gambling and prostitution and people passing through. Yeah. It's people passing through the West gate of Yellowstone national park is the busiest gate the busiest entrance gate into Yellowstone Park and upwards of a million and a half, two million people every year pass through West Yellowstone on the way into Yellowstone National Park. It's been a long time since I was, I was out there in 88, which was the fire year. Yeah, that was, that was quite a year. I'll never forget that year. That's when Yellowstone burned. Yeah. I think Girock has a chapter called the drought year, maybe one of his books about it. Well, we've had 30 of those now. We're in a, you know, we're in the mega drought. We're probably 30 years into a, a huge drought out here. It's not because it's not you moved out there and you're just thirsty and take long showers. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I wish it was because I'd sure cut back on, on the time in the shower. No, unfortunately, how, it's a sign of the times. How long did it take you to adjust your angling from being a Michigan angler to a, a Western angler? And that brings me also, what do people from the West Coast call your area? Because 75% of the United States is east of the Western fishing. But what about the people that are west of it? Well, every, you know, and everybody, our, our biggest, uh, when I was in the fly fishing business, and I still am, and we'll talk about that a little bit. I was, I've been in the business for 40 some, 43, 44 years. And we recently sold... Uh, a business that we started called Blue Ribbon Flies in West Yellowstone. And since then, um, I'm starting up a little f- a fly tying business called Not For Profit Flies, K-N-O-T, Not For Profit Flies, where all the, the profits go to conservation. But our, the biggest share of customers come from Salt Lake, uh, L.A., and San Francisco. And they come here to fish. They come to Yellowstone to fish because nowhere on earth is there more public water available to the fly fishermen than West Yellowstone. There's Can you explain that? Say there's listeners in Romania or Sweden that have to deal with private property rules. Can you explain the, the Montana system? Well, it, within the state of Montana, the, uh, you know, the Montana stream access law was a huge boon in that any, any stream that offers recreational value that flows through private property if it's, you know, if you can gain access to that water via, a, uh, whether it be a highway or a public road or a, a section of BLM or whatever, state lands, you can fish or hunt along those streams. You can hunt waterfowl and you can fly fish and fish those rivers, creeks, and whatever, um, as long as you can get access, legal access. So consequently, most waters in Yellowstone um, touch a road, touch a public road, and you can just jump in off off a bridge and away you can go and stay within the high water mark. And you I'm, can wade fish it or float fish it. I remember seeing a lot of fly anglers right off the bridges when I was a kid driving around there. Well, there's a ton of them here, you know, that gain access that way. And again, you know, that's why they call this uh, area the trout heart of the world, because there is so much uh, public water associated with Yellowstone, whether it be, you know, sloughs, lakes, ponds, rivers, um, streams. There's so much public water available to anglers and very little of it gets any angling pressure. 
you know, the river I live on, I mean, I can look at, see the Madison River 400 yards out my front window, and that gets a tremendous amount of fly fishing pressure, fishing pressure. But there's so much secondary waters, what I call underfished and overlooked waters, that virtually get no fly fishing pressure at all. And I love to fish these little streams when the tourists are here. And sometimes these little streams hold big surprises. That sounds fun, getting away from the crowds. Yep. On the smaller I have stream. a stream right here on our place. We have um, over two miles of the Madison River flow through our place here. And, wow. and uh, in the summertime, quite often during the day, I explore all these little creeks. And there's one little creek that flows through here. And I fish the lower part of it where it dumps into the Madison, because quite often when the water gets warm, larger fish come out of the river into the cooler tributary. And my wife said, let's go up on the Forest Service. Let's check the creek up on the Forest Service. And we did that day. It was during hopper time. And we were catching 16 to 19-inch uh, browns and rainbows. And I'm as guilty as everybody. You know, I drove over this little piece of water for, for 40 years without even exploring it. So there's so many of these surprises that are so close to not only Yellowstone Park, but the surrounding area that get very little fly fishing pressure. That's what's keeping you young is being able to go and explore all the time. It's like being a kid. That and, and I hate, I hate the machine. I wore out four Nordic tracks and I'm working on number five, which is a Nordic incline machine. And uh, I'm on that for 45 minutes every other day. And I elk hunt and I bird hunt high country with my German short hairs. I'm seven. I'll be 73 this year. And I still, uh, still get out there and, and hunt big game. I'm 43 mature bulls in 43 years elk hunting, and they're all on public land. So I, I try to stay in good shape, and I'm out every day with the dogs, even in the wintertime. We'll go for a walk here in a bit. That's, that's fantastic. All right, I'm going to ask you just a couple of, like a dozen or so, little topics about how things have changed. You don't have to go into detail if you want. You can be as brief or as elaborate as you want. Okay. How's the population changed since you were first there? Still a lot of bikers and prostitutes? No, the bikers, the bikers still pass through. I going back to them, I sat the bikers get down. The president and secretary of, of every club, we sat down and had an agreement. I got an 80-acre campground set aside on the Forest Service Forum. Out of West Yellowstone, they could do whatever they wanted to out there, shoot their guns and have fun with their, their what they call their old ladies. And it worked out very well. And we still, matter of fact, I had a biker come in, the meanest biker I ever met in my life. He came in, in uh, the shop and looked me up a couple years ago. And back then he was about 6'4", weighed about 280 pounds. And he, he'd always say, I just as soon kill you as look at you. And this old guy comes into into my office about 40 years after I'd last seen him, this little old bent up man with still long hair, long greasy ponytail. And he said, you don't remember me, do you chief? And I looked and I said, by God, is that you tiny? And he said, it sure is. And tiny had taken up 10 fishing. Wow. And, and we walked down memory lane he still had a bike that he didn't ride. He, they trailered it around. He'd get, you know, wherever he, he decided to land, he'd ride around for a couple a couple blocks in town. But anyway, we went 10 car fishing that night. Well, when you've um, got a motorcycle, it's easier to pack yep. less gear. 
exactly. That's where we sold a lot of 10 car rods to bikers. Anyway, long story short, the bikers have certainly all got older and mellowed. Um, the ladies of the evening, I allowed to ply their trade back then, as long as they came in every Friday and we had lunch together, smoked cigarettes, drank Diet Coke, and, and had lunch for several years. And they are all still, I'm proud to say, around the area, got married, business people, smart as heck, great, great ladies. And every Friday, they'd come in and tell me what was going on around town. Organized crime left a long time ago because they found out very quickly that people, families weren't going to come to Yellowstone and the old man wasn't going to sit in the strip joints and gamble the life savings away while the wife and kids went into the park and toured. So that mellowed out. So anyway, since they've all left, uh, the population in and around uh, Yellowstone Park has grown 50%, if you can believe that. In the last 20 years, it has spiked 50%. And with that, of course, has come, and during that time, of course, we've had drought and we've had massive fires in the area. We've had lower water. We've had fishing closures because of warm water at times. Things have changed. Climate has changed. Have you seen a lot of nature been paved over and just turned into housing and Panera with a Best Buy and just sprawl? You've seen that, you know, around the population centers uh, like Bozeman and, you know, places like that. Bozeman, Montana has Gallatin County. The population is just blown out of, out of sight. But here in these areas, and I'm so proud to have worked on a lot of these conservation projects. For instance, the Madison Valley is the most intact valley from a conservation standpoint in Montana. We've worked so hard to get conservation easements on nearly 60% of the, these wide open spaces in the Madison Valley, securing not only wild trout habitat along the river because it prevents harmful streamside development, but also um, wildlife migration corridors, intact wildlife migration corridors. We have a viable population right across the road where we've, uh, we've commissioned studies on wolverines you know, we still have wolverines in the area. We have the largest free-range uh, elk population in, in the West. We have over 10,000 head of elk right now in the Madison Valley. And it's all because of these big migration, or these uh, big conservation easements that we've been able to, to coordinate. The first one, of course, was the $3 bridge project. The next one was the Sun Ranch right across the street from us, keeping, you know, again, 60% of the developable um, areas undeveloped. You know, they sell their development rights and we organize them to be purchased, whether it be through Trust for Public Lands, the Nature Conservancy, Montana Land Reliance, Western River Conservancy was the uh, outfit that we worked with to secure the $3 bridge project on the Madison River that keeps four miles of the Madison free of development and open to the public to fish. You answered a lot of my upcoming questions there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. And one of the reasons I thought about doing this podcast with you is my neighbor's from Montana. And the last couple of years, especially with COVID, when he goes out, they can't really go anywhere and do anything because every trailhead is just completely filled in with tourists that you can't get rental cars. And it's just, People are going out there just to escape 
No doubt about it, Very COVID true. has brought in, brought in a huge influx of tourists to this area. And some of the more popular trailheads, um, like you say, you can't even find a parking space. But again, you know, if you get off the beaten path, um, I go to trailheads up behind the house here, maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes away, there'll be nobody up there. Everybody's kind of in the more popular places, the easy access um, areas, particularly uh, on the Madison River. You know, you go to Lion Bridge, Mackatee Bridge, those popular access points, and they'll be packed with, with, uh, with anglers or hikers or, you know, bird watchers. But like, for instance, when we did uh, $3 Bridge, everybody thinks you got to park on the river to experience that area. My God, there are so many other access points on the $3 Bridge Ranch, on the Olive Ranch, which was the next ranch upstream towards Reynolds Pass. That's all open to the public for hiking, bird watching, hunting. And even during elk season, there may be three or four cars parked there. But that's access to the Lee Metcalf Wilderness Area. That's 200,000 acres. Wow. That is as wild a country as you'll ever find. 200,000 acres. Yeah, I'm looking right now. We work so hard on the access uh, um, and conservation easement on the Sun Ranch. We used to manage the Sun Ranch, and we were also the hunting and fishing outfitter for Sun Ranch under a previous owner. And there's access on the south end of the ranch at Papoose Creek, and during hunting season, don't get me wrong, there may be 30 vehicles parked there, but those hunters can spread out into not only the 200,000 acres of wilderness, but the million acres of U.S. Forest Service land not designated as wilderness. So there's plenty of room to stretch your legs. With all these tourists, are they respecting the environment there, or are they leaving garbage? Uh, you see a fair amount of trash, but what I love is people like you and I police th those areas. In other words, if you see somebody throw out litter, you jump on them and say, pick up that litter, or you lead by example and right in front of them, walk up and pick that litter up and stow it in your pack. And that's made, that's made a huge, uh, a huge impact. A lot of people are totally still totally ignorant, even though there's trash cans in major parking areas. So, you know, you, you try to lead by example and inspire that kind of change. And I think young people in particular, they are so respectful of wild places and these areas that remain wild and open to the public access that they, they treat these places with kid gloves. They're so mindful of litter and everything else. And, you know, I, I love to say <laughs> Sons of Silence, a biker gang that we used to allow to camp in the area here, the Sons of Silence biker gang would leave public lands in better shape when they left than when they got there. These guys would pick up every freaking speck of litter. Their campsites were spotless and that's infectious. And when other people saw what they were doing, they do the same thing. It's pretty cool. Have any of the bikers made you a hybrid leather biker vest? slash fishing vest <laughs> no no but we used to sell them a lot of skunk tails that they that they put through their helmets and a lot of them have become friends i've got a good good buddy of mine who runs the uh, veterans biker program and right in sturgis south dakota 
he comes out and fly fishes every year. A lot of those guys we've made into fly fishermen and they have a great time when they're in the wilderness. Fun. And with the increase of just the amount of people has runoff increased, it's kind of the opposite with the lack of precipitation. But if you've got more you know, paved services to handle all these people, does you get, do you get more erosion on your streams and more salt? I don't know what they put on your roads, but does that yeah, go in? Fortunately, fortunately, in this area here, our highway department crew, because of our bighorn sheep population, will not use salt and petition the highway department in this area not to use salt because the bighorn sheep would come down to lick the salt and they'd be, they'd be struck by vehicles. So we've been real fortunate. Now, areas like uh, in the Gallatin, you'll see uh, trees that are, are impacted negatively by salt that's spread on the highway. Um, we don't have much runoff situations due to siltation here other than from fires. You know, fires will create huge runoff the following year. But it's interesting. We all preached doom and gloom. We thought, oh, my God, on small streams like Cougar Creek, Duck Creek, even parts of the Firehole River after the, after the fire of 88, the runoff that we saw, we thought, oh, my God, it's going to kill this river. It's going to kill off the invertebrate population and then the, the wild trout population and native trout. But what it did is it dumped huge nutrient load into our streams in this area. And consequently, it improved the macroinvertebrate population into the future, and the size of the trout were increased because of those fires. But I'm not saying that that's a huge benefit. It was in the short term. But the long term, the effects of drought and the effects of, of running roads or logging up these sensitive riparian areas were certainly felt. And now um, the Forest Service does is quite more mindful in terms of where they allow logging. In our conservation groups, those activists and advocates um, that we fund through our 1% program, and we'll talk about that, pressure uh, land managers to do the right thing. How are the river levels? I know you guys had the big Madison dam break, but if you've got droughts, are they trying to reserve more water in the reservoirs? Well, that's if there is a benefit to dams, that's one of the benefits. They can, they can store water. And for instance, last summer, um, Hebgen Dam is not a power generating dam. It's a water storage dam. So consequently, they were able to kind of mitigate the effects of low warm water through J July. At the end of the July, they, they had to institute river closures because of warm water situations. But there are times when dams can be beneficial in terms of wild trout management, and that was one of them. They've been holding, you know, we're at uh, mid-70, maybe high 70% of normal snowpack right now. We've lost, uh, you know, we, we haven't gained any, let's put it that way, um, snowpack in the last two months. And we've lost about 20% of normal, if you will. So we're going to go into probably another low water situation. And they've been kind of pinching off Hebgen Dam right now. It's about seven, Hebgen Lake is about 70% full. And they'll probably, I don't know if they'll fill it. They'll come close to probably mid 90 percentile of filling Hebgen uh, for water storage and be able to, you know, kind of crank those flows out in the summertime to mitigate warm, low water, the effects on wild trout. And it's been a while since we've had someone explain the hoot owls. I'm sure you know Richard Franklin from New York. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. So Richard was on years ago and he explained hoot owls. Can you explain those? Well, that might know, what they'll do is they'll quote like last year for the first time in my memory. And that goes back for 43 years that we've lived here. The Madison River up above Ennis, the town of Ennis and below Hebgen Dam was shut off from uh, 2 p.m. 2 p.m. in the afternoon to 2 a.m. You could not fish that river. You could fish it from 2 a.m. And I don't know too many fools that go out there at 2 a.m. and stumble around, but from 2 a.m. to 2 p.m. you could fish because the water would be cool enough. Again, at 2 p.m. the water would warm up, so they would shut it off. And that's what they called hoot owl restrictions. And are those just more prevalent these days? They've become, you bet they've become more prevalent. And again, last year was the first time, to my knowledge, that they ever shut the, river, the upper Madison River off because of hoot owl restriction. And what exactly makes the Madison such an amazing fishery? Uh, number one, the resiliency. I, you know, God, the, the, the amount of fishing pressure, this is the most, this is the heaviest used river in Montana, the Madison River. And yet the wild trout population seems to hang in there. Although the last few years, there's, they're noticing a decline, particularly in the brown trout population now. But it has tremendous recruitment. It has tremendous macroinvertebrate population, and it has a tremendous wild trout population. And, you know, Western wild trout management was developed on this river. You know, catch and release fishing was developed on this river back in the, the early 1970s. Dick Vincent, Bud Lilly, Charles Brooks, um, Dick McGuire, those guys are responsible for wild trout management. Catch and release, and that's what brought this, this river to its fame. What about the whirling disease issue from uh, 25 plus years ago? Yeah, 1992, 93, 94. It's interesting because these fish within a couple generations have developed and they don't know how they've done it so quickly, but they've developed a resiliency, a resistance to whirling disease. And while they all still have whirling disease, they don't show the effects of whirling disease other than the fact that the trout don't live as a rule as long as they once did. And that's, that's uh, longevity of fish is increasing every year and every generation of fish. As a rule, they don't live as long. So consequently, they don't get as large. You know, the size I think has dipped from 14.8 inch average down to 14.3 inches if memory serves me. Does the movie still have long-term effects out there? What was life like before a river runs through it and then afterwards? Before, it was so awesome. You know, the fishing pressure wasn't near as great. During the movie and, and in subsequent years, there were times when I, my wife and I would say, we got to sell out, sell out of this business and get the hell out of fly fishing because it brought a lot of people into fly fishing that had no business being in fly fishing because they had no respect for the resource it was great for business. I mean, you sold every one of them a new rod and reel and waders. And they went out for a year and decided, God, we don't want to get muddy or we don't want to get sunburned or bit up by bugs to catch a couple of slimy fish. So they, they got out of the sport. So we had a big spike for a few years and then it dipped again. Recently, we've seen, you know, that spike continue. And I suspect COVID's had a lot to do with it because people want to get out in the outdoors by themselves and experience you know, a beautiful place, <clears throat> such as a wild trout river. 
yeah, it had a lot of negative impact to the fishery and to the sport. I hate to say it, but it did. You mentioned migrations earlier. With increased populations, are there more animals being run over and killed? You know, there were, this is kind of interesting because we've kind of led the charge trying to get better signage on, uh, particularly in the wildlife migration corridors, warning motorists when the migration is occurring that there's elk on the highway. But these animals with the increased population, increased traffic and the increased number of animals, we initially saw a lot of animal mortality fatalities. But over time, the animals have kind of figured out what traffic is all about. And, you know, with better signage, with wildlife uh, migration corridor signage and flagging, um, and the increased knowledge of just the animals themselves, taking more caution when they hit roadways, I think that has not become, or that is becoming less and less of an issue. Certainly, you know, I've seen grizzly bears hit and killed here. Believe me, you don't want to hit one of those with a, with a little vehicle or your toast. There you sit with a, usually a live bear storming around still. But anyway, um, we've seen moose killed. We've seen, I, it's been a horror story. But with that, over the last couple of years, animals are starting to figure that whole regime out as well. So you don't have a run on elk hair when an elk gets run over down by the house and you can go and. No, it, there's. Uh, I saw a backcountry hunter and angler had a post today. A friend of mine, when he was a state senator in Montana, Larry Gent, issued, uh, was responsible for legislation to allow people to pick up roadkill, fresh roadkill, and get a permit for it through over their computer, which allows them to take that animal home and butcher it. So you don't see roadkill like you once did. Here you can take your roadkill to Valley Protein and making it a soap, I think. I yeah, yeah. You. Yeah. Now, if you're usually, and the problem that you have here is if it's, it sits on the road and the highway department's really good about this because if it sits alongside of the road for long, you're going to have a grizzly bear jumping all over it as Vultures, well as, uh, and we have golden eagles, we have bald eagles, and they all get on those carcasses and they get, they're subsequently hit by vehicles. Get a whole food chain going of scavengers. Exactly. More yep. things get hit. You know, I, I saw an elk get hit here. I didn't see the actual accident, but I saw a bull elk that was laying alongside the highway, a full-grown bull elk. We were going to the dentist office in Bozeman just about a month ago, and I saw uh, six weeks ago, I saw a bull elk laying along the highway by Ennis. Within six hours, there was not one speck of meat left. The eagles came in, the coyotes came in, and it was gone. That'd be pretty cool to put up a time-lapse camera by that, just to see that oh, all yeah. go down. Yeah, you see a lot of photographers hanging out along the roadway, photographing everything from wolves to... I lost a quarter of an elk one time up on the mountain. You know, you can't haul them out. If you shoot them way back there, you got it may take a day or two. And we flag them and whatnot, but I lost a quarter of an elk one time to a young mountain lion that came in and, and took a front quarter. And I lost a back quarter of a moose one time to a wolverine that came and peed on it. And you don't want to take that home with you. Wolverine pee. I think yeah. the first time I've ever heard of that mentioned in a sentence. Well, I've seen two wolverines hunting um, in this area here in both occasions. It was really 
really special to have a Wolverine run up to you. Yeah, of course, as a kid, my only knowledge of Wolverines was from Red Dawn or from yeah. watching Marty Stauffer. Yep. <laughs> There's a name I haven't heard for a while. <laughs> oh, man. I used to, that's what I was thinking about the time lapses because he would do time lapses of all sorts yep. of stuff. You bet. Seeds growing and a mouse decaying. Yeah. Maybe I need to track him down and get him on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, what about invasive species? This week, we have smallmouth bass in the news around yeah. Yellowstone. Well, there's been smallmouth taken um, as far upstream, to my knowledge, is, is Livingston on the, on the Big River, on the Yellowstone River. And there were several of those taken over the last couple of years. And we all knew it was just a matter of time before they'd w- work upstream. And uh, that's very disturbing news because obviously it indicates warmer, warmer water. Um, and that's unfortunately a sign of the times. We're, climate change, of course, is the the biggest existential threat to, to mankind right now. And we're all sitting here waiting for government to do something about it. And it ain't going to be government and it's not going to be our religious leaders. It's up to us as individuals and, as, and business leaders to solve the climate crisis. I had a drive into the city yesterday and I'm pretty sure there were a lot of cars not on the road just because of the gas prices right now. Expensive gas would keep people from driving. No doubt about it. No doubt Get everyone about off it. Of, I would love Let's an electric it. car. Electric cars or electric vehicles are, yeah, we're all going to, it's the end of oil, the end of gas, the end of fossil fuel. It's coming. So let's let's face it and let's welcome it with open arms. And let's now, get to work on it. That one snowstorm we had this year in Virginia, a lot of people were driving on 95 and got stuck for more than 24 hours. And yeah, I saw that. The people with electric cars were cozy and warm and great, and everyone else froze their butts off when they ran That's out of right. fuel. Well, I know I, I do uh, lectures around the country. I do one here in a couple of weeks when we get back from Argentina to Montana State University Chemical School of Engineering, and it's all on climate change. And climate change is the buzz, and we no, can no longer look the other way. we got to grab it and embrace it. We can't wait for somebody to come along in the nick of time and save the world again, because it's all over when it's over, and we can see the effects of climate change coming right at us, and we get, can't look like deer in the headlights. We got to get to work on it. Yeah, the generations down the road are going to have some serious problems. Think of it. Yep. Yeah. What about after you're done fishing for the day? Have things changed? Was there probably just the old? Biker saloon, and, and now there's some little more upscale joints you can go to after you're done swinging yeah, flies? Yeah. Not, actually, not where, where we live. We're, again, we're a little over half an hour out of Ennis, so if you want to go to Ennis, by the time you got there for a Hamburg and a beer, most joints are closed. There's a few taverns there. West Yellowstone has a couple of late-night places. We have the Grizzly Bar just about five miles upstream, but they don't open or they don't stay open beyond 9 o'clock at night, so... The old watering holes are, are no longer what they once were. And, of course, COVID had a lot to do with that. I suspect we'll see some spring open and stay open a little bit longer. Most guys, though, it's interesting. When they're done fishing, you see them camp out like at $3 Bridge or Reynolds Pass or McAtee or Lion, and they set up a table, and it's really kind of cool. You see guys sit back and share a drink or two, and whether they're from Michigan or Minnesota or, or Rhode Island, or California, they, they just pull up a chair and, and start to visit. And fortunately, a lot of that for us is 
talk about conservation and what we can do to protect and preserve what little we have left of wild places like, like Yellowstone. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Speaking of wild, I'm sure there's a lot more boats out. You don't get to see the pristine scenery as much with boats going by. And it seems like nowadays, back when I was a kid, when you were my age, nobody really had private fly fishing boats. Those were just guides. And now there's drift boats all over the place that are personally owned. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I tease people. I, I'm probably the only, I was the only outfitter for, for many years. And I'm probably the only private Montana fly fisherman that doesn't own a boat. I can't stand drift boats. You know, a lot of people get a kick out of jumping in a drift boat and watching a bobber all day. I get a kick out of looking at 50 yards of water and looking for heads and fishing to rising fish. And I like to do what the river tells me to do, not mindlessly watch some fluorescent orange thing float down the river. And I always used to get a kick out of people, customers, when they came back to the shop, I'd say, hey, how was your day? God, I don't know. All I see when I close my eyes is this orange thing and moving water. I said, did you look up and check out the mountains or see any wildlife? Oh, no, no. I was just too busy watching that orange bobber. And I think things... uh, have turned to that and and it kind of bothers me because there's so many not only wild places to see and enjoy in wildlife but wild trout and to put together the challenge of what a fish is feeding on to fish a little dry fly to a visible target to me that's what it's all about little dry flies will bring me to my next question how has fly time material things like hackle and synthetics changed the game out there especially with your caddis trailer (laughs) <laughs> you know, for you, of course, we, we, we used to like to think that we, uh, I remember talking to Gary LaFontaine and we all used to laugh like crazy and say, yeah, God, look what we came up with. This trailing shuck idea, whether it's a mayfly or a caddis. Well, if you read Colonel E.W. Harding in 1937, he talked all about the shimmering effect of, of trailing nymphal or pupil shucks. And I always say originality in fly tying is merely undetected plagiarism. It's been done before, and in this case, it was done 70 years, 80 years before. So, yeah, synthetics have changed our our fly time. I'll never forget how we came up with a sparkle done. Um, my, my former partner and I, John Jurasek and I, sitting on the bank of the Henry's Fork, and we had just uh, tied up a bunch of Swisher and Richards emergers with duck quill sections that they used to imitate the shucks. And we're laying in the grass with our noses 
within three or four feet away of these 20, 22 inch wild rainbow trout on the Henry's Fork at the crossover fence. And we're watching these trout key on mayflies that were trailing these shimmering shucks. And we tried the duck quill and they worked a little bit, but I'm gonna tell you right now, when we put our little Zelon trailing shucks over them with that sparkly shimmery shucks incorporated, they worked a whole lot better. And that's how, you know, I was anti-synthetic. I was always the, yeah, well, you gotta use natural materials, blah, blah, blah. And it has really changed the game for us in a lot of anglers and fly tires. You tie quite a few flies every year. What are some of your favorite materials or brands that you have to seek out specifically for your patterns? Well, unfortunately, you know, probably the biggest one is Zelon. And I know everybody's heard about Zelon. And you, I'll tell you a little story on, <laughs> on Zelon. Uh, I want to say it was the early 1980s. Our, our old friend John Betts from Colorado, he and I were visiting one day. And we had each shared um, a use for Zeon. We got a sample from somebody, and neither one of us can remember where. But anyway, we, we found out that Zeon was easy to use, easy to dye. That was key. Floated well to imitate that raft of a, of a shuck, of a trailing shuck. So we found out that Zeon, we had a cone of Zeon, and inside it said DuPont, Zeon. So I called DuPont. And, of course, you get the runaround. You get... Well, you're going to have to talk to Joe Blow. Pretty soon, after about seven transfers, I get a guy that answers the phone, and he curtly says, you're a goddamn fly tire, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, it's pretty good material, isn't it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> he had been using it. So we, we carry on a conversation. I finally said, can I buy some? And he said, well, we used to sell it by the railroad car. It was used for braiding and for rugs and so unfortunately, we no longer manufacture Zelon because it was susceptible to stains. I said, oh, my God. So it's the end of Zelon. He said, well, I got a pallet of it, 586 pounds of it. He said, I'll sell you the whole pallet. I said, whoa. I said, well, how much is that? It turned out that the price of that was so cheap, the shipping to ship that, to truck that out, was cheaper than the cost of, of the 586 pounds of Zelon. And that's the material that we still use. Now there are other, other you know, materials, Parapost and Antron and some of the others that are, are great substitutes for Zelon. How long did it take to go through a pallet of Zelon? Because you're only using a pinch at a time. We're still going through that pallet. Um, oh, wow. But we're down, we're, we're really low on Zelon right now. That's funny. We're always looking for better substitutes. Yeah, that's what I love just going to, craft stores, thrift stores, yeah. just wherever stumble upon things. Darn right. That's part of, that's part of the fun of Zeon. I think we're all or, uh, shopping for materials. I think we're all kind of treasure hunters. Uh, fly tires are that way. And we're always looking for the latest, greatest. What about the whole streamer thing? I can just call it the streamer thing. Back in the day, woolly buggers, matukas, muddlers, kiwi muddler. Yeah, and now, now you've got wet socks on the end of a fly rod with hooks in it. Yeah, to me, it's kind of like uh, throwing something out there that you'd see a two-foot hooker wear. You know, one of my old prostitute friends. I, I think sometimes it's almost disrespectful. I'm going to get in trouble for this, but it's almost disrespectful to the fish. 
you know, we're throwing these big hooks out there and putting out eyeballs and ripping lips off fish and throwing these god awful things at these fish. And I, I like to show them a little bit respect and, and tie a pattern that they're imitating something that they're used to taking. Now, don't get me wrong, fish love sculpins, and I, I tie a woolhead sculpin, one that we were uh, given credit for developing for many, many years, woolhead sculpins and matukas and, you know, that sort of thing. But God, some of these flies that are six, eight inches long, again, with big hooks, that are just killing fish. I, I don't condone that at all. And when I, we're on the Potomac, I can catch the same size largemouth with a size 10 scud hook as somebody using a five-aught hook that's as thick as a pencil. Yes. And you yeah. catch these largemouth and they've got gaping holes in their mouths left by these massive hooks. Oh, God, yeah. Some of the fish you catch here, their mandibles are all deformed, all ripped off. They can barely ingest any. They're skinny as a rule because their mouths are so deformed they can't, they can't feed. That and, sure impacts their feeding. So I, I like smaller flies. I like barbless flies and hook the fish and release the fish without ever taking it out of the water. I see our fish are bathed in pharmaceuticals. So they've got all the antibiotics and everything else. So when they get hurt, you know, they're not doing too bad. You know, and you, you bring that up. That's interesting. A friend of mine from Cottonwood Environmental Law Center is filing suit uh, against the community of Big Sky uh, Sewage District for dumping, you know, un, uh, treated sewage into the Gallatin, which is a violation supposed to be held in line ponds and it's finding its way into the river. And he proved that by dumping dye and sneaking in trespassing and dumping dye into, into the river system. And then it, or dumping dye into the ponds and then it, the moose was there. So the dogs are whining. <laughs> That's a first in a podcast interview. <laughs> I had to let him out. They'll, Marvin is his name. Marvin comes by, destroys my wife's solar powered bird bath. He's ripped everything apart in the yard. So the dogs will bark at him and chase him out of the yard and he'll just stand there glaring. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, they're, you know, they're finding pharmaceuticals now at the Yellowstone Club because they're using treated sewage, treated water, I should say, gray water to make snow. And people are falling all over in that. Um, it's finding its way into our river systems. Look where, look where they're finding, wherever they look, they find pharmaceuticals in our water. I hate when they make snow and it's yellow. Oh God! <laughs> All right, That's let's why talk. I no longer ski downhill ski. I only cross country. <laughs> oh, I would love to. I want to cross country on. A, I saw it on a TV show once, maybe in Sweden, and it was all groomed. Oh yeah, like when, on the Olympics. That looks fun to me. We have a groomer right here on our place. Um, it's towed behind a a cat, and we can uh, groom about four miles of trail with a little groomer, and we cross country ski on it. Yeah, so our Nordic track growing up was for our friends to try and fall off, and my parents would hang things on with hangers. Yeah, yeah. It was never really for exercise. Well, we, you know, all the Olympic, all the uh, international Nordic teams train here in Yellowstone, so that's really cool when you see all those kids training here in November. We get the earliest snow in the world, so they come here to train. So each season, you've got a different group coming in. Totally different, Yep. From skiers, snowmobilers, then you get the uh, the fly fishermen, the early fly fishermen. You get some winter fly fishing. A lot of people that are here to ski will winter fly fish because we have, at no time will you see more rising fish than you do in the winter during midge times. 
Yeah, you recently wrote an article about midges, I think. One of the magazines yeah, and I last just wrote year. Another one for Umqua Feather Merchants just actually yesterday. Another one on winter midge fishing. Yeah, I don't have that out here. What I'm trying to tell people is uh, don't book a flight to Yellowstone to come out and plan on winter midge fishing because you can hit weather like today, you know, 17 below zero. Nobody's out there. Although my good friend who recently passed away, Jack Gartside, Jack wanted to catch winter midges one time. He came out from Boston. It was 22 below zero. We kept the truck running and we caught fish at Reynolds Pass at 22 below zero on midges. Because there's that little microclimate, you know, from the surface of the water for an inch. And those midges emerge every day when the fish feed on them. It's been a long time since I've done winter midge fishing. It's fun. Oh, it is. God. And again, at no time will you see more heads coming up yeah. to, uh, to little dry flies. All right. As much as I, I would love to hear cart side stories too, but we got to talk about conservation. And some of the, the work you're doing, some of the work you're doing off the stream. Say, were you always involved in conservation or was it maybe when you moved out there and met some other like-minded people that. Now, when I, when I was activist? a kid growing up, when I was a kid growing up in Michigan, I used to drive Governor George Romney nuts because as a young kid, I was forever writing them letters and saying, you know, they're overdeveloping uh, Silver Lake up by heart. They're putting in an upper Silver Lake. They're damming up trout streams. They're. You know, they're just creating a mess up here. Um, and I was proud to donate all of my letters from George Romney to the Montana State University uh, angling collection. All my letters went to them a couple years ago. So I've been involved in conservation. My grandparents taught me all about conservation growing up in Grand Rapids. When was it that you met Yvonne? I met Yvonne in uh, the early 1980s. Um, he walked into our fly shop and I was talking on the phone and this little guy walks in and he's standing at the counter, very impatient. And I'm on the phone and I said, I'll be right with you. And finally I, I hung the phone up and I said, can I help you? And he goes, why don't you have Patagonia clothing in your store? And I said, I've been trying to get it for years, but the rep, the sales rep won't get, get me uh, the line. And Yvonne says, listen, I'm Yvonne Chouinard. He sticks his hand out and he said, I own Patagonia. And he said, you got it forever. He said, this is a working fly shop and I want you to have Patagonia. And we became instant friends and that's been close to 40 years ago. Wow. Co-founded 1% for the planet too. Which is, I mean, everything, the Selk bag I recently bought is 1%. So much of- You're seeing more and more 1%. Yeah. Fortunately, our network is growing over- 6,000 businesses. Our world summit that he and I will speak before is next week in LA. We're going to speak to the world summit. Again, 6,000 members, over $350 million so far that we've collected that's gone to, well, we haven't collected, but it's gone to our members have, have donated to conservation and environmental causes around the world. We're both really proud of that. And how that was founded, we were sitting on the river fishing one day on the bank and we're talking about what our businesses did for conservation and we both decided because we had donated to activists grassroots advocacy causes that we would found uh, an alliance of businesses called one percent for the planet and it's a solid commitment because you donate one percent of your gross 
sales, not net profit, hocus pocus. You know, most businesses don't make a profit, so consequently they don't donate anything. Well, this was gross sales, and it's a solid commitment, and it's it's infectious and viral, and to watch the the whole alliance of businesses grow is really, really rewarding. Where are some of the places you've been able to go to spread the word on conservation besides going to LA soon? Oh God, I've spread the word. (laughs) This is kind of an unlikely partner, but I went up with Conical Oil Company. They asked if I'd go up to Alaska, to Lake Clark, Alaska, and talk about conservation in 1%, which I did. I've talked about conservation in, uh, in the Galapagos, Galapagos Islands with natural habitat. What a great conservation group that is. I've talked uh, conservation in most states around the country, from again, from New York City to LA and beyond. Um, when we initially founded 1% for the planet, Yvonne and I took the opportunity to travel around the country and talk to uh, conservation groups and talk to Patagonia dealers from Denver to San Francisco to New York City to Atlanta. We went all over the place trying to get people to sign up for 1% for the planet. That's how we initially got got started. And uh, sad, sad state um, of fly fishing, the fly fishing industry, because out of those 6,000 members, only nine members are in the outdoor business. And that tells you something. The Fly Fishing Climate Alliance, I was on the founding, one of the founding members of that, and seven guides and outfitters are members of that. And I used to be very hesitant to talk about that, but I don't, I don't give a shit anymore. You know, it's time that people who make a living because of healthy rivers, cool rivers, wild places, wild trout and wild fish stand up and support those ad- advocates and advocacy organizations and activists that protect and preserve what we're all here for and what we make a living because of. Yeah, they're not going to have a job if they don't protect what's making them money. Nope. Nope. I come, I come under huge uh, um, fire from a lot of the outfitters around here because I'm asking for, and our clients and even the guides and outfitters say, God, there's just getting to be too much pressure on this river. So how do we address that pressure? Well, the state came up with the idea. First, we limit commercial use then we limit public use. And we're going to see that on all heavily used rivers around the country. And Montana was always the leader of the pack with wild trout management, catch and release, all that. So I thought, this is a no-brainer. Let's start it right here on the Madison River where wild trout management was born. But boy, you talk about any kind of limits whatsoever, and they will take you to the cleaners. So they kind of backed off from the idea. And I don't know where it's going to go, but sadly, more and more people um, are fi- finding that out, you know, and they say, well, hooking mortality, they say fly fishing pressure has no um, effect on a wild trout population. But when you have hooking mortality running between eight and 15%, and those fish get caught 10 times a year, their numbers come up and we are affecting that by, by fishing pressure. What should anglers do other than support companies? What do you want the angler at home, the angler around the world to do that is it joining their clubs and supporting local things? You know, I went one time, I love to use this club as an example. I went to uh, 
Kalamazoo chapter of Trout Unlimited in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And one of the one of the members there fished out here a lot at three dollar. And he said, I'm having a hell of a time getting our membership to support the three dollar bridge project. This was when we were initially trying to raise five point six million dollars to do the, the three dollar bridge project on the Madison River and protect four miles of the river um, against harmful streamside development, but also secure public access forever by having a public parking lot and whatnot facilities there. So I traveled to Kalamazoo and their membership said, you know, we have a lot of projects going on here in Michigan. Why would we want to support your project um, in Montana? And I said, for the simple reason that 90% of your members come from Michigan to $3 bridge to fish every year. And they said, you know, you're right. And they gave us, I think they gave us $20,000. And you can make that case, um, whether it be in Michigan or wherever. Um, whenever we use these public resources, we have to give back to those resources. And that was one way that we got the $3 bridge project completed. A side question, how did that bridge get its name? I know I've read it before. Oh, I have a photo here I should show you of the old rancher, Frank Shaw. And Frank would charge $3 bridge or $3 to park there for access. He it was his it was his parking lot. He put a safe in and he said, you know, if you're gonna walk six thousand of my acres, you're gonna pay me three bucks. And I used to get such a kick out of anglers that go, that old man's getting rich. And I said, okay. 10 cars a day back then, which was a lot back then, at $3 a day, I said, that's $30 a day for 100 days out of the season. I said, yeah, boy, is he ever getting rich off of you guys. What he wanted was, he just wanted to visit with you. He wanted you to personally give him three bucks, and he would sit there and talk to you, and you could he'd give you a couple shots of whiskey, which were more than the $3, or $3 you were paying for access, and you got to know Frank. And pretty soon he was a lifelong friend. And that's how it got its name, $3, was the money that was charged for access. And usually once you paid that, he never asked you for it again. He just wanted to meet you. I hope that wasn't the Uncle Carl's Montana whiskey. No, no, it wasn't. (laughs) I had some of the the 101, and I didn't know it was 101. And I kind of just drank the glass of it. And I've never had anything like go down. And then come right back up as quick as that drink (laughs) in my life. It was. (laughs) Now, Frank liked wild turkey. Yeah, I haven't had that since college. Yeah. But Haywood Curry. I don't know if you've ever met Haywood Curry. He runs Cocker's K in Belize. I I sure have heard that name. I've been out to Cocker. You know, we used to spend six weeks a year in Belize. So I, I knew all about that. Yeah, he and his wife Heidi moved there about 20 years ago. But he always had a bottle of wild turkey under his driver's seat in his massive pickup truck. Texas guy. And <laughs> you'd have to take a nip of it. I don't think I ever drank. No, we once drove to the Outer Banks from DC and he would stop about every 45 minutes and buy my buddy Tom and I a 40 ounce beer. He said, You guys got to finish this before we get to the next stop. Whew. And the two of us were just in the back. We were. I mean, I was 20 and it was just one of the craziest rides, all back roads before GPS. It was crazy. That's cool. Yeah. I drink 40 ounce beers, not the wild Turkey. 
Let me finish the $3 bridge story because a lot of people are really kind of unfamiliar with how that happened. And this old rancher was responsible for it because one day I, I, I went to Frank and I said, Frank, let's not kid ourselves. You're going to have to someday sell this property. You're going to sell it because it's worth a lot of money. And we hate to see you sell it. And I had an old customer from California, a big rancher. And he told me, he said, if this ever comes up for sale, he said, I want you to call me because he said, I'll buy it and we'll do the right thing. We won't develop it. We'll keep it in ranching, blah, blah, blah. So I, I called Frank and I told him that. And Frank says, you know, I may have to get a million dollars. I said, no problem, Frank. So we talked for several years about the fact that, you know, one of these days he was going to have to sell it. And one day they called and said, got to sell the ranch. So I called my buddy, Fred, and I said, Fred, I got to have that million dollars. And he said, it's on the way. And then I called Frank back and long story short, Frank says, well, I talked to my partner and we really need 7 million, you know, typical Montana land deal. But he gave us, he gave us time. He said, I'll give you some time to come up with the money. In the meantime, I called an old friend, Hugh Zackheim, who at that time was with River Network, which morphed into Western River Conservancy. And we made a project out of it. And we're struggling trying to raise, we got them down to 5.6 million, trying to raise the money. And we got about a, a quarter of a million dollars. We, we bought it, a year long option. And this is, this was, you know, three miles of the Madison River, 6,000 acres. And uh, we're working hard to secure that money. And that's when I went to Western Michigan chapter at TU and Kalamazoo chapter and several other chapters of Trout Unlimited around the country. And again, we had uh, bought an option for a year and a guy walks in the do door of our shop one day and he says, what in the hell are you guys trying to do raising money? Are you trying to buy that and subdivide it or what's the deal? And I said, no, 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 we're trying to buy it and make sure it doesn't get subdivided and it's open to the public for fishing and hunting. He said, how about this? He said, how about I buy it? I will sell you the river corridor, which turned out to be about 177 acres. For the money that you have raised, I will put the rest in a conservation easement. We will never develop it. We will leave it open to the public forever for fishing. I said, I could just kiss you on the forehead. And it turned out his name is Bob Graham, Bob and his wife, Annie, who become very close friends. And Bob and Annie have done not only that, 50, 5,600 acres in easement, but they've done almost 15,000 acres now. They own all the way to the Idaho border from $3 Bridge. Wow. And that's how, that was the impetus um, to get the Sun Ranch easement done, to get the Granger Ranch easement done, to get the Carroll Brothers easement done here in the Madison Valley. It was just a stepping stone. And we've been able to build off of that. And I'm really excited and proud of that. And we've got some work to do yet, but that's why we're so protected here in the, in the Valley against uh, harmful development. Those are people that really understand it. That yes. get it. That get it. That's right. Yeah. So what does 2022 have in store for you this year? You're going to hopefully get some more snow. Do some yeah, vision. I'm going to spend some time in Argentina. Um, you know, we're going to do the 1% thing. Yvonne Chouinard and I next week, the World Summit, then we're off to Argentina to fish for a bit, then come back and do a couple of, uh, I think I spoke earlier, uh, 
going to do a lecture at Montana State University and a couple more throughout the summer months, um, do some more conservation work, work with Yellowstone Forever on the Native Fisheries Initiative in Yellowstone National Park. My wife and I were on the founding board of Yellowstone Forever, which at that time was called Yellowstone Park Foundation. Going to try to finish my book. Um, I'm about 60,000 words, but I probably won't finish that until next year. But just keep right on and get my not-for-profit fly, fly uh, business going to give back to conservation and just keep right on working. Is life easier not owning a fly shop? Life is a lot easier. Um, not the headaches of making payroll and dealing with all the paperwork and all the guide and outfitters stuff that goes with it and inventory and trying to keep open 12 months out of year with a seasonal, you know, a three month seasonal business. Um, it is a lot easier and it frees up a lot more time to do some of the things that I want to do. But, you know, to me, the business was all about the customers in those lifelong relationships. And I kind of miss that. Although I see most of them and many of them on, on the river during the course of the summer, and I still keep in touch with a lot of them. I miss that daily interaction. You're definitely a people person. Well, and that's what, that's what built the conservation programs yeah. for us. The people I'll never forget talking about $3 bridge that first day when I got the call from Frank Shaw, the rancher, and I'm talking about it in front of some customers and I get a guy with his back turned to me and he turns around and gives me a check for 50,000 bucks. He said, this will get you started. The world is full of those kind of people. And when you touch them with conservation stories, they give back. And that's what makes the world go round. Uh, do you ever have influence in baking Patagonia gear? Like, hey, Yvonne, I've got this idea for a pair of pants. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do a lot of testing for them. Um, <laughs> my biggest claim to fame, I fish on my knees all the time. I walk on my knees. I scooch along on my knees to get close to rising fish. I like to see their eye when I, when I hook them. And my biggest thing that I influenced was knee pads and waders. Yes. That was my influence. But I have a lot of, I give a lot of feedback. I'm forever testing waders and, and, uh, and gear, vests. I'm testing vests and hats and coats and all that. What about the aluminum bars when they came out? Did you get to play with some of those? Oh, God, yeah. I've got some of the original aluminum bar boots that didn't last two weeks down the basement. And I, I sent a lot of them back to the Patagonia Museum. But that was a big deal with Yvonne and I, the aluminum bar boots, because, you know, aluminum grips so well. We're testing boots right now. We're testing a, a couple of uh, brand boots, one made in Italy and one made here in the U.S., and they're lightweight wading boots. I wore a pair elk hunting one day. They're so comfortable. I wanted to see if I could wear them hunting in the mountains. You're going to see those offered for sale next year. They're fabulous. Can you finish off with some Jack Gartside stories? Since that's a name that you don't hear too often. It's more of one of the obscure, I want to say, characters or personalities in fly fishing in the last century. All of the above. I've met, I'll never forget meeting Jack and I had heard about Jack for years and here I am the police chief and commander Cody and his flying airman uh, band was here and we're we were at a motto you, you, you police a town the way it wants to be policed and 
when we were policing a concert of Aerosmith, uh, we policed concerts of Aerosmith, but Commander Cody, our guys were always on the outside. We were never on the inside, you know. My, they let the kids have a good time. They let the band play on. Anyway, Commander Cody's in there, a thousand kids. Gartside's in there. He loved to dance. He sent word to the police department he wanted to meet me because he knew I was a fly tire and we were just starting our fly fishing business. So I walk in the, in the front door of the Mammoth Room of the Union Pacific Railroad Hall where they held the concerts. And the beer is probably six inches deep on the floor. And I see a guy that looks like Ichabod Crane, that was old guard side, spinning a couple ladies around on the dance floor. And in I walk and he recognizes the uniform and I walk up and he gives me a great big hug. We became instant friends. He used to live in the basement of Blue Ribbon Flies. And I used to love to watch him. He could look so emaciated. He could look so forlorn, so hungry. And he'd be tying flies in, in, in our shop, bellied up to the counter. And you could see people walking by and in comes a couple of guys and he goes, watch this. And he put on that sad face, that hungry face. And he was smoking old gold straight cigarettes and tying hoppers. And anyway, in they walk. And one of the guys says, God, Jack, you look starved. And Jack goes, I'm just famished. Out the door, they go to dinner. Six times he did that that afternoon. Six times with six times. And he would, he would put food in his, the pockets of his over, oversized coat. He would have food stored in the refrigerator in the shop. He would have six months of food stored. He was a master at that. But he was the kindest, most generous person. And we became such close friends over the years. And again, uh, I'll never forget him and I fishing in the fall. I'd bring him a cup of coffee and in the morning. I'd wake him up down at the shop, bring him in a big cinnamon roll. He'd eat a couple bites out of it. He'd put the cup of coffee in the pocket of his overstuffed coat. I don't know how he kept it from spilling. And out the door, we'd go in a snowstorm. And he'd fish his soft tackle streamers to fall run fish. And he just was a joy to fish with. He was a special person. And uh, we miss him in the fly fishing world. I've got some photos of Jack. He loved to go to the church bazaar. And Jack was bizarre in a certain way. He would buy everything from cheerleader uniforms that he'd, he'd walk around with the little pom-poms cheering fly fishermen on. You know, he'd always find a use for something that he'd buy at these church bazaars. I gave him our 19, I want to say it was a 1976 Volkswagen van. It was orange and white. We gave him that. And he took a doll and he made a hangman's noose and he hung that doll and then he hung another doll in the other window and he'd drive around town with a moose rack duct taped to the roof of the van with the two hanging dolls in the window. And it created quite a scene but people would follow him into, into our fly shop and they became good customers because of it. That's amazing. Well, Craig, I really appreciate everything you've done. I mean, a lot of us wouldn't be here without your contributions. Where can people find your signature flies, your books, your conservation, your contact, anything they want to learn more about from this episode? If they go to Yellowstone Conservation, there's a, a Facebook page, and I'm on Instagram at Yellow, Craig Matthews. 
Yellowstone Conservation. All I have to do is type in Craig Matthews, Yellowstone Conservation. Books are sold through Amazon, through, you know, what, my close friend Nick Lyons published them, um, although we did self-publish a couple of them. But if they look on Amazon or eBay, they can find all the books. They can go to our old fly shop, blueribbonflies.com. Um, Not-for-profit flies is yet to uh, have a web presence, but we're getting close. Our biggest problem is finding fly tires, um, but we'll find fly tires. I want them all tied here in the U.S. And again, that, that money, that profit all goes to conservation. If they go to 1% for the planet, it's all spelled out, 1% for the planet.org. They'll come up with all our 1% work. There's several videos there. If they go to the $3 bridge celebration, Trust for Public Land, any of that. There's movies of all our work on $3 Bridge and all the conservation work that we've done here. The Odell Creek Restoration Project, which I didn't mention earlier, that's huge because by restoring Odell Creek, which was a private property deal, and we come under fire for that, but Odell Creek dumps into the Madison, and it's the biggest hatchery, as far as I'm concerned, on the Madison and those become public trout that the public can fish for. That cooled water temperature by as much as three degrees going into Ennis Lake, that's a huge conservation success. If they go to the Odell Creek Wetlands Project, they'll see all the work there. Yellowstone Forever, the Wild and Native Trout Initiative, the Lake Trout Story, they'll see a lot of the work there. But if they Google Craig Matthews or Craig Yellowstone, uh, conservation they'll find it amazing well i thank you for your time and hopefully we'll meet in person sometime and we can record again then sounds great i, I appreciate your time and thank you for allowing us to tell the story yeah super thank you for joining us for the fly fishing consultant podcast for more information or to contact rob please go to www.robsnowwhite.com this podcast is brought to you by freestone productions at freestoneproductions.com